for action. Airzone Podcast 22. With me today are fellow AR Zone admins Barbara DeGrand, Tim Geyer, Ronnie Lee, Jason Ward, and Roger Yates. Hi, everyone. Hi, Carolyn. Hi, Carolyn. We're also being joined today by longtime vegan advocate in the UK, Lynn Yates. Lynn has been a science teacher up to college level for many years, a science advisor to an English local education authority, and has recently been an education consultant in southern Sudan. Lynn has been a vegan and an activist for over 30 years and has worked on many campaigns over the years, including the abolition of angling in the UK. Lynn, welcome to AR Zone. Hello, Carolyn. <laughs> Would you like to begin today, Lynn, by explaining how you became involved in the anti-angling campaigns in Britain in the 80s and explain the difference between angling and fishing for us today, please? Okay. I'll, I'll do it the, the question backwards ways on and, and, and explain the difference between angling and fishing uh, first, if that's okay. Well, angling is just a kind of fishing. Fishing is the global uh, word for pulling a fish out of the water and um, in whatever method you want. But angling is specifically where you use a rod, a line and a hook. We have two types of angling here in the UK and I suppose it, it, it worldwide. But we, we call coarse angling the fishing for inedible species. So it's, it's here is called a sport and it is done for pleasure. The other kind of angling is called angling for edible species like trout and, and salmon. And that uh, kind of angling put, brings in a lot of uh, uh, revenue for the people that own the rivers, uh, in, 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 in quotes. All other kinds of fishing might use nets and, and things like that. Thank you, Lynn. Yeah. Uh, so why did I get involved? Well, I always done a lot of walking in the in the countryside, and my uh, walks are blighted if I go uh, along a, a river and there's anglers there. And I was, I think, I was reading a copy of the Vegan uh, magazine, and there was an advert saying a national secretary was needed for an anti-angling group if anyone was interested to come to the AGM. So I went down to London uh, to the AGM and the group was very small. I think there were five or six people there only. And of course I was unopposed because there were there just wasn't the people to keep this going. And I thought, and, and this, this was the first time I'd learned about the group. So I thought it was really important to keep it going. 
And uh, so I thought I'll take it on and see what we can do. In those days, we didn't have facilities like this to talk to each other over Skype and, and what have you. So I communicated with other members uh, of the group by telephone or letter. We from the house that uh, I was uh, I had then we installed a large photocopier and we put put out all of the leaflets for the group and we wrote um, a newsletter called Pisces and sent that out but it was the uptake was very very small but we uh, we worked very hard to try and keep it going and I think, in, I think in the end, the numbers just dwindled because there was a lot of pressure for us to stop campaigning. It was around the time there was a lot of interest in the uh, political scene about particularly uh, stopping the hunting of deer with dogs and also other other species, hare and and fox as well. But the the one the main focus was was the deer at the time, and everybody kept saying to us, "You can't uh, campaign at this time," because what the Countryside Alliance group was saying at that time was, "We can't let them get, get this uh, bill f- through. We once they've done hunting, they'll go on to angling." And so if we made a big splash at that time, is what they were saying, that it will be highlighting the fact that, yes, we will be going on to angling in a big way next. And they really wanted to get this um, bill through Parliament. And it was around that time that the group just uh, disintegrated. I actually, and I know there was the campaign uh, against angling uh, restarted at one point, but I've tried to find out what they're doing at the moment, and I, there's nothing anywhere uh, that I've been able to find any more or any more yeah. information. It, it, it's an interesting um, historical moment, this, isn't it? In the sense that we're, talk- yeah. we're talking about the early 80s, right? And we're talking about, as you say, the League Against Cruel Sports is, is powerful within the movement, and Ron will remember this. Uh, and so consequently, the, the, the British movement um, is focused on blood sports, but they're focused yes, yes. on hound sports. Yes. And uh, I, always tell, I always tell the story about how, um, well, the leader of the, of the league tried to get the, the representative of the hunt amateurs to take her fishing as a blood sports badge off. So there's a, a lot of political stuff going on yeah. at the time. Now, there's even a question about the name of the group that you were the secretary of, isn't there? Because yes. Like, we, we, we've, been trying, we've been trying to find it, haven't we, on the internet? Uh, and and there's no, there seems to be no trace of it anymore now, isn't that, there? That's right. It, it, it's gone. But it was a, the, the the debate was around the fact that it said the prevention of cruelty by angling in the title. And uh, some of us were saying this is not strong enough. It, it, it implies that if you take out the cruelty, if there's a way of taking out the cruelty, then angling's okay. And and so uh, so we, we were we were wanting to change it, but at the same time a lot of pressure on us not to be in existence at all. Yeah. You know, so so that that welfare and rights debate was going on in the early 80s, and certainly in uh, in that group. What were the tactics of the group, Lynn? What what sort of thing did you do? Well, 
because we were so scattered, there wasn't much coordination. And I think I think people did in their own areas as much as they could. Uh, we certainly did things like uh, leaflet drops and, you know, trading around to other groups and vegan events, you know, the local vegan group and things like that. I myself have been known to throw a few um, pieces of tackle into the river, like the whole rod and everything. Uh, but uh, I'm not quite sure what other people did. <laughs> You know, fishermen sit on the bank and they need to go to um, somewhere to have a pee. So that's when you put their... That's when you grab their tackle. That's right. (laughs) 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 Uh, Happy days. It didn't take long, did it? I think it's interesting, isn't it, in the sense that, you know, people who join the movement now in the internet age, they probably don't really have any idea about how difficult it was in those days, you know, when you were you, when you were dealing with like Gestetna printers, where you were, you, <laughs> yeah. know, that, you know, that kind of thing, and it was all to do with the post and the telephone if you could afford it, even going down to the public telephone to make calls and this kind of thing. Yeah, you know, it's a completely different world now in 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 that sense. So we we think then, Ronnie, just to clarify this, we we think that the group was called the Campaign uh, for the Prevention of Cruelty by Angling. Yeah. And yes. Do, do that, does ring a bell yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, good, good. Oh, yeah, right. yeah excellent yeah and and then they were t- then they were taken up by the campaign against angling yes and I, I think the only thing that remained from that early 80s group that lynn was was involved in is the magazine name which is pisces i think that's the only thing yes. that's left isn't it yes yeah i think so i think there's still still is some kind of sabotage of angling events occasionally um, whether that's done by the hunt saboteurs or other groups, I'm not really sure. But occasionally you do hear about it. Yeah, well, it's still fun moving the tags. Well, they, they they always put the numbered tags out the night before. If I find uh, somewhere that's been tagged, I go and remove them. When you say tag, that means where people sit. Yeah, oh, the, yeah, the places where they sit. Because if it's a competition, they're, they're all given numbers and they have to go to their number before they can, uh, you know, to start, before they can start. Well, when there's no numbers there, it makes the start of a a fishing uh, event quite difficult. I mean, I do that, so I still do that sort of thing. I've done that, uh, you know, through the years. So you're the main anti-angling militant of... of, of (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you think there's a difference, Lynn, between the type of person that uh, goes angling and, say, somebody that goes fox hunting or or shooting animals for so-called sport uh, do you feel that they're kind of more more like ordinary people so to speak the anglers that... oh yes in that in that respect uh, because angling is the biggest sport in the uk there are thousands and thousands of anglers in if, if not millions in the in, in the uk uh, that do go angling and they t- they have family outings you know the kids are playing on the riverbank and uh, they've got multiple rods set up and they take their shelters and, and erect them and you know it's an all-day all job particularly the coarse fishing is relatively easy to get a, a license for and and it's cheap you're not t- talking about a lot of money so it attracts right across the the spectrum of people with all all the social groups. 
right up to the, the aristocracy, which, of course, have their own stretch of water in, in, in Scotland, uh, for, for, uh, and they fish the, uh, the salmon runs. As you do. Can I ask you um, a technical question? You, you go and differentiate between one type of angling and coarse angling. Mm-hmm. In coarse angling, they use a barbless hook, is that right? Because the idea is to throw them back, is that, is that right? Well, the hook that my friend's uh, dog picked up one day, and his, it went through his tongue, definitely was barbed, and they were from coarse masonry. Okay. Yeah. It's not universal that people don't use barbs. It's not universal that they don't use lead weights and things like that, which cause another problem uh, for, for swans and yeah. ducks that eat the lead weights yeah. and, and, and they get die. Get entangled up in the line. Yeah, the yes, line. yeah. Uh, so, Ronnie, on, on the political question, can you confirm the, the person that proposed the hunting ban that's gone through in England, Scotland and Wales, he was a guy who actually went fishing himself, is that right? Can you remember his name? You know, I'm not, I'm not really sure, Roger, to be honest. Was it Jack it, Cunningham? No, no. Lynn's group represented the thin end of the wedge argument. The blood sports people were arguing. I mean, it, I mean, it wasn't the Countryside Alliance in those days. It was the British Field Sports Society, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, picking up what you said a bit earlier, Ronnie. Did I think there was different type of people? The blood sports that are done on horseback with dogs generally, not all the time, but generally, are the higher uh, social groups. It's a gentleman's sport, uh, although women do it as well. They but deny but it, is it, pardon? They deny it. What? They deny what? Well, they say that you know minors are involved, and I mean that. Oh yes, I think it's a case that they have a couple of mounts for somebody from the village that they will uh, take along with them. But it's very upper class kind of activity. Following on from that. Lynn, would you say that fundamentally, or perhaps generally, the people that go angling are different than people who take part in other so-called sports like hunting with hounds and, and shooting, in that the anglers tend to be very much more ordinary people and therefore more open to education to try to get them or to persuade them to not go angling by teaching them about the cruelty that's involved I agree with with that. There is a class divide between the two sports, as they will call them here. But we've got to get in at the ground level. Children are taken. You know, you see little ones of three, four, five years old who have got their little lines like daddy has and mummy as well, you know. And, uh, and so I think we need to get in at, at primary level. But because we have so many people that do angling in this country, it, how we get to them, I don't know. My own grandson, who is eight, he's, his parents live separately. And when he goes to his father, his father takes him angling. And I, I'm, I'm mortified. He comes back elated. I really enjoyed it. I saw a fish. And, and we, we caught one this size. And how do you get in at that right early age if we don't get some cooperation within the education system, for instance? One of the main problems is that a lot of people don't believe or realise that fish feel pain and it actually hurts them when, yes. when the hook goes 
in their mouth. It does. And and they talk about, you know, there's no blood and things like that. Well, the, the fluids in a, a fish are largely pale blue rather than red because they have the different oxygen carrying uh, molecule. And so, no, you're not going to see it, but it's there. And we all know that research has told us that there's a lot of uh, nerve endings around the mouth. That's where it's, the hook goes. And that when you release a fish from the hook, it will be a long time before it feeds properly. And a lot of them will die. We know that. And that, yes, is the message that we have to get across. So something like um, a letter writing campaign to newspapers might be a good idea in that that would reach thousands and thousands of people and help to educate them about the, the suffering of fish. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Lynn, could you talk about how you became a vegan and why? Yeah, I, I became a vegan in the late uh, 1970s. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was late 1978 that I finally went vegan. But prior to that, I've always ha I always had an uneasy feeling about eating animals. My father was, he went out shooting, and so he would bring back rabbits and hares and ducks and things. And I was required to help in the preparation of those things to make meal. With, uh, along with my mother and we also used to keep animals in the backyard she had a, a, a small uh, shop and come Christmas the routine was that uh, someone would come into the shop and say they wanted a chicken for Christmas or, or whatever my brother my elder brother was uh, would be dispatched to the uh, hen run. He would kill it. He'd bring it to me, and I had to uh, pluck it and, and and gut it. All in the time we had while my mother served this customer, and uh, you can imagine that I I really I really did not like uh, this at all. Uh, we we also always had a pig, and I always used to go and sit on the fence, and the pig would put its head on my knee. And I would just, uh, you know, sort of uh, stroke it behind the, the ears. But of course, coming up to Christmas, the poor pig would disappear. And instead, we in the, in the freezer, because my had a large freezer, was uh, pork for sale. Uh, again, I, I didn't like doing it. But at the same time, uh, my father, who was very violent and aggressive, would not allow you to uh, say no uh, you're not going to eat that meat. And I remember one occasion I, he gave me, I had sausages for uh, my meal and I said I didn't want them. And I sat from lunchtime to bedtime with that, those sausages in front of me and I refused to eat them. And he refused to let me leave the table. And next morning, guess what I got for breakfast? I ate them in the end. So I've always had this idea that I don't want to eat meat. So I eventually got my education, went to university, and I chose to, do, to, to read a biological subject, biochemistry, 
And so there was an animal experimentation to do. And actually, I failed my degree, and one of the problems was that I didn't complete the, the practical assessments because I couldn't do it. I couldn't take these rats, which we, we were monitoring, for over six weeks, and I couldn't kill them in the end, so I stopped going. I knew what I had to do, and so I just didn't attend the lectures and the practical sessions. I, I got married, and my uh, my husband insisted that we, we have meat. I was wanting to give it up. When I, I left him f um, about 15 months later, I was living with my mother and my two children, and I was watching the television. On the television, there was... Um, a scientist called Magnus Pike, and I don't know whether Ronnie remembers, uh, remembers him, but he was very famous for the gestures he would do with his arms and, and, and what have you. And he was extolling the virtues of modern farming methods. And behind him, I could see these cages. I thought at first they were chickens, and I looked and because it wasn't really in focus and in those cages were pigs they had pigs in battery cages and at the time i he was saying they were experimenting with lambs in in cages in australia and new zealand and i just looked at the screen and i said enough's enough I'm not being part of that. I first of all went vegetarian, but it was only a, a few weeks later after I'd done more research onto these wonderful modern farming methods. And I went vegan and I've never wavered since, even though there's been pressures on me from family members, you know, the ones that say, have you still got your fad? Well, it's not been a fad because I'm still a, a, a committed vegan today. No, so that... I've been trying to get you to eat meat for years, haven't I? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> on that particular subject of veganism, this this is a thing that um, seems to be quite prevalent in the movement at the moment. As I understand it, you've never taken supplementation, is that right? Never. I, I, I mean, I, I read about it all and, you know, and, I, and everybody went on about uh, B12 and what have you and making sure you have enough of this and enough of that and enough of the other. And I just discarded all that lot and thought what I need is a good balanced diet. So I set about making sure that in every in every week I had a whole gamut of different vegetables, nuts, seeds, uh, fruits, and what have you. And I've never ever had any problems associated with my being vegan. I've never been better in terms of my health than when I became vegan. And I, w I wouldn't swap it for anything. It was quite difficult when I went to, um, uh, when I said I wanted to go to Southern Sudan in 2010, because everybody said there, well, you're a visitor. They will, they will kill the, 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 the goat and expect you to eat it. Didn't turn out like that. I, everywhere I went, I explained 
why the, that I, I I didn't want to eat meat, and because they all put their dishes all separate on the table, I was allowed just to take from the ones that I I wanted, and I was in I, I spent about seven months altogether in in 2010 there on two visits, and I was never ever pressured to eat meat. In fact, I think think because they get so little that I wasn't taking it was a, a bonus but that's another that's another story let, let me pressure on this in, in the sense that this is important within the movement at the moment right and so you're talking about that you've not supplemented um, since the, the late 70s yeah and and you're feeling great and everything but also isn't it true that your vegan diet is quite restricted compared with the average vegan diet as well and so consequently you know i'm thinking in terms of the kinds of claims that are coming out of, of groups like vegan outreach at the moment that there's a big emphasis in the movement about supplementation especially b12 which you've never done and yet you've got relative to most vegans a, a restricted diet because for example you don't eat sugar you went through periods where you didn't eat wheat do you still i mean i'm not quite sure you know so in in that sense it what interests me here is that you have a restricted vegan diet. You've never supplemented and, you, and you're grand, as it were. And yet we've got claims in the movement, more and more from nutritionists and everything else, and you know vegan outreach, that we need to su- supplement. And uh, I'm quite interested in that because I'm of your generation, obviously, and I, I never supplemented until I came to Ireland. And there was always, you know, the, the, the modern Irish vegans were kind of like oh you got you've got you got to su- supplement you know and go on the internet and you go on the internet and everybody goes oh you got, you've got, you got to supplement but um and i think ronnie could probably back this up it seems to me that most of the 1980s type vegans have never supplemented and they're all okay so there's something weird going on don't you think if you if you're using f- fresh vegetables fresh f- fruit and things like that i can't see the need for it i suppose the only thing was it was the vitamin 12 well at the time i read up about what symptoms to expect over what time period because it's a lot of years before uh, uh, you'll get any response if you if you've uh, got a deficiency and at that time uh, marmite was said to be a good source of it and and so that was in my diet, not, but not all the time, you know, just, just periodically. But I've never had any of the uh, things. The only thing I wor- worry about is uh, because it, it, was, it was more difficult in, in a sense in our, uh, in, uh, when we started to be vegans because we didn't have the, the processed stuff in the same quantities as the, there is today. Are people now relying a lot more on processed things and worrying that the vitamins and minerals aren't there? Because I, I can't ask, answer the question, really, because I, I just plough my own furrow as I do with everything else. And what makes me feel good is good food. And, 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 I, and, yeah, and I really, really don't want to pay, uh, take supplements I, I just don't want to do it there's a general trend to medicalize everything in the world our society tends to think that science is the answer to every problem that ever was including things that science knows not much about and from the reading that I've done 
most supplementation that most people take is useless and in fact some of it might be dangerous and so there are a lot of people who say if you're going to take a multivitamin every day that's a high quality multivitamin it can't hurt but it's not really going to do a heck of a lot to help so I, I think supplementation is something that people overvalue generally in our society and, and um, I, I think probably most of it's unnecessary whether you're vegan or not. I would agree with that. You know, I, I am very lucky. I am uh, uh, healthy. You know, I, I appreciate that. I mean, in the last 30 years, I've not taken even an aspirin. You know, I don't take medication for anything. And I, I, I've been very fortunate. And as I say, I, no supplements. But going back to you, Tim, I mean, I, I know that at one point you, you did quite a lot of research on vegan outreach, right? Yeah. But, I mean, isn't it true that Jack Norris, you know, didn't he do a, uh, a dietetic um, course in order to, to learn about this? And, and then, in a sense, you know, from, a, from my point of view, <laughs> some of this is going to come up later, I think, uh, in, terms, in terms of claims making, vegan outreach claims making changed in the sense that, you know, they, they, they were kind of on board in the kind of thing that Lynn is just saying. And then now they seem to be... You, You've got to supplement. You know, you 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 need to do this and you need to do that. I wonder really what's kind of caused the shift, because there seems to be almost like a generational gap between vegans here. I think. Well, I, I think that in the case of Jack Norris, the way that I understand what happened is that is that he became concerned that he was hearing a lot of claims being made about a vegan diet being some kind of miracle cure-all for whatever ails you. And that didn't strike him as being plausible, and he was concerned about that sort of misinformation, and I think it was also a concern because he didn't feel like he was fully equipped to answer questions or to answer challenges that were being put to him about the benefits or the, or the pitfalls of being vegan as far as the diet was concerned. So he – from what I understand, he's a registered nutritionist. He, I believe it's what it's called, or a registered dietitian. I'm not, but in any case, he knows the science. And I think what he says about supplementation is, is that it is true that most people get their vitamin B12 particularly from eating products that are derived from other animals. Vegetarians don't have to be concerned because dairy products contain it. And so it's not anything that they should be concerned about. But it might be a concern to some people who are vegan if they have – a natural deficiency and so it's more complicated than just saying that vegans need to supplement with B12 I think I think what he says is that you ought to be aware that it could be a problem and you should not just assume that it isn't yeah well, so, I, I agree with that I mean I, I was given the task when when we were setting up the website for vegan Ireland I was given this, the task of researching B12 and, and that issue and it was it was a minefield you know like there was there's claim and counterclaim on just about every single issue you can think of. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so consequently, the only thing that I could do, and, and you can still see this on the Vegan Island website, is that, is I said, well, these are the competing claims, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> make of them what you can because I couldn't really make much of them because I was trying to take myself out of it in the sense that I'm from that kind of 1980s generation and I kind of concur with Lynn which is, well, doesn't seem to be much of a problem, you know. And yet there are lots of voices within the movement that, that says, oh, you know, you must, you must, you must, and everything. And so it's kind of like an unresolved issue within the vegan movement, I think. 
and um, it's very kind of difficult to make any definitive statement about veganism and B12. And as I said, I do get this distinct impression that there is some kind of generation gap in, in the sense that we in the 80s and onwards just didn't kind of care. We, we, we were kind of told, you know, there's B12 in, in seaweed and there's B12 in this and that and the other. And now we're told that that's just analogues, which don't really do anything. Yes. It tends to be in a lot of products anyway, doesn't it? In margarines, in yeast extract products, B12 is put into those products. And a lot of vegans eat those, even though they might not actually take vitamin tablets. So that could well be a, be a source and it could well be an adequate source of B12. I think generally, if everyone did what Lynn says, and that's eat a wide variety of foods from all different sources and paid attention to eating a diet that was real food, I don't know. If, I, I knew – this goes back 20 years, but I knew a girl – as a, she was a vegetarian at the time, but all she ate was prepared macaroni and cheese out of a box <laughs> and potato chips and ketchup. Good that's, idea. Yeah, that's all she would eat. I swear. That was her diet. She she ate potato chips with ketchup, which I didn't understand, and prepared macaroni and cheese out of a box and occasionally would eat a salad. And she never looked healthy. Imagine that. So just because you don't eat certain things doesn't mean that automatically that you're eating a proper diet. But I think if you eat a proper diet that um, you go a long way towards eliminating the need for any supplementation. There's also another controversial issue in the vegan community lately, Lynn, in regard to the release of meats from farms. Peter Young spoke about this in his recent AR Zone guest chat, and um, I believe you've got a different perspective on that too. Could you talk about that for us now, please? It's a real bugbear for me, is this? Because I'd like to step back from the question just just to put it into perspective. I have always been interested in natural history and I'm aware that the balance of all the organisms, plants and animals, within a, a habitat is very fine and humans have changed most of the habitats around the planet. There's very, very, what did, what did Roger call it, as pure land left. But what there is, in, I'm looking now at the UK, what there is very defined habitats for free living animals to enjoy. For me, if we're going to do something like a release of mink, we have to say, what is that going to do to, into the habitat that we're going to release it into? Now, an earlier chat than the Peter Youngs, Roger was speaking uh, about this, and he, t he was saying there was little damage done when the mink were released in the UK. Well, I, I've done a, a lot of work with, with a, a, a wetlands group and I can tell you that on that site, on that, the, the wetlands, which are key to biodiversity uh, uh, in, this, in this country, uh, the incoming mink destroyed the populations of water voles. The, the other thing that they did was... Because they're more aggressive than otters, they're not as big as otters, but they're much, much more aggressive than them. They took away their habitats. And so the, the numbers of 
otters declined, the numbers of uh, waterfowls declined drastically when they were released. Now, I know what Peter Young was saying, that he thought that in America, where the uh, minks were released, there was little damage done to the ecosystem. But you've got to remember that mink already live in that ecosystem. Mink are not indigenous to the UK. It's a foreign species. And there are no predators here that are used to eating mink as opposed to what, you know, the, uh, the other animals in there. So, yes, I can understand there's this huge desire to uh, uh, release captive animals, but there's, always, there's a payoff when you do so. And I have a real difficulty in allowing what I call human-made animals, those that are bred in captivity, those that are selectively bred for particular attributes by people to letting them out into an ecosystem where they don't belong. Because I think there is more killing in that ecosystem. And in some places, there's a complete change in that e ecosystem. Our planet is very fragile. And I think we, because we care about all animals on this planet, we think of them in a different way to lots of other people. They're not just expendable in their own habitats. It's a disaster if the ecosystem breaks down because there's very, very fine tuning there. And that's my main concern, that we almost lost all of our uh, water bowls. That's, that's ratty in the uh, wind in the willows, an iconic animal in our country. We almost lost it to those mink. And it has also brought the animal rights movement into more conflict with the conservationists because now what's happening is all those minks that were released, yes, they've had freedom from then to now and their offspring, you know, is blossoming out there. But you've now got troops of conservationists who are out there trapping them, killing them, mm. so that they can get back the species that they want in that that should be in that habitat. So I'm I'm not convinced that it's right to release a, a non-indigenous species into the habitat anywhere. I'm not convinced. I, I completely okay. agree with you. I have exactly the same concerns. It's It seems simple enough, I think, sometimes to think that you're going to release thousands upon thousands of minks and give them their freedom, but it's just so much more complicated than that. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree with that. I mean, it's it's something that I've always felt uneasy about. In, in fact, I did once take part in a raid on a mink farm, but we specifically didn't go to release the mink. We actually went to the farm to cause damage to the equipment that they had there. We ended up getting arrested, actually, and uh, fined for it. So we never, we never actually uh, 
the farmer came out with a gun and started firing it and we, we ran away and later got caught by the police um, trying to phone somebody to come pick us up. But um, <laughs> Well, they did. <laughs> we were caught at the phone box. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but I know there's a, a, a couple of the arguments you know, sort of put forward by people that, that are in favour of mink releases would be, first of all, on the issue of mink aren't an endemic species. Yes, I mean, we've all got to agree with that. But what some people would say is that mink were already in the environment, having been released by fur farmers themselves because there was a dip in the market and they weren't able to... Uh, to sell the, the, the skins or whatever. So, so mink were originally released by the farmers themselves or had escaped from the farms. And so there was already some sort of population of, of mink in, in the wild anyway. And the second argument that people put forward is that when mink are in the mink farms, animals are being slaughtered anyway to feed them because they're, they're fed on meat. So animals are killed to, to, to feed the mink while they're in the the, the mink farm so when the mink are released all they're doing is is killing the animals themselves it uh, isn't a case of no animals being killed to feed the mink and then suddenly that changes th th those two arguments don't kind of don't persuade me to to kind of feel easy about mink being released but they are a couple of the arguments that that are put forward and i'm wondering if lynn uh, has anything to say about that yeah i've, I've heard these arguments before and yes, there were some mink out there before the releases happened, but it was a, it, the, the, the releases were very big. And you can imagine putting that many predators into one small habitat. It just, things just get out of hand. I know we, couldn't, we shouldn't really favour some animals over others, but I have a real difficulty putting free living animals into danger with those that have been specially bred by human beings um, and now you, you might say well they're both animals but you know life out in the, in the wild in inverted commas is very hard and to then make it even harder by flooding the market, if you like, in predators, it seems to me that we shouldn't do it. I know that mink are fed on animals while they're in captivity. They shouldn't be there. We all know they shouldn't be there. But it, do we have an ecological disaster as well by re releasing them into the wild? I mean, you're always torn. If you've got the animal there in your sight and, and you look at mink and you think that, yeah, I mean, that whole family uh, of animals are beautiful and what have you. And you want to do something for them and you want to get them out of the situation that they're, they're in. But I argue that releasing them to the wild is probably not the best way. Wasn't it true that a large number of them actually came back to the mink farm because that's where they, they got an easy meal? So I would have liked to see something like a shelter for them to be taken and kept in a, a confined space rather than just left into the wild. 
But leading on, on from that, Lynn, what's your view about uh, about cats? You know, cats being um, being allowed to kind of roam free in the wild and, and the number of um, wild free living animals that they killed, which is which is actually a huge number. We've got a, a, a very large number of cats here. We've actually got 25 cats, but they don't go out. We keep them in and create a, a good environment for them inside. We've got quite a, a big place, thankfully. And one of the reasons we do that is because of concern about the uh, the wild animals they might kill. So I was just wondering if you if if you have a, a view on that whole issue of cats. Um, I do, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it, it, it's one again that I find very difficult to say, uh, to to get my emotional head and my pragmatic heads together, because when you see a tiny kitten, say, that needs rescuing a kind a tiny kitten that's lost its mom and and she won't survive if you don't intervene you have to say at that point if you intervene and you keep that cat alive what is going to be the consequence in terms of other animals that are going to suffer for it certainly if you let it go into the wild and become feral that's as bad as letting out the mink right so if you keep her and don't let her go out into the wild then what are you going to feed her on are you going to keep that cat in captivity for the rest of its life are you going to neuter it are you going to give it an unnatural diet these are all questions you've got to ask yourself, isn't it? You know, I want to see, I want to see an end to domestication of animals, uh, and I, I'm, I'm sure you all do as well. But yes, that animal needs consideration. But you have to say, if it, what it, what if it won't eat a, a, a vegan diet? Are you going to kill other animals to keep it, it alive? Haven't they got as much right to their lives as cats? There's, there's two issues here, isn't it? In the sense that, one, Ronnie, your, your 25 cats, are they vegan? And secondly, Lynn, I always tell the story about when you were in Portsmouth, you approached the RSPCA people. Yeah. And you, you were asking... Yeah, um, who were collecting um, tins, you know, asking people to donate tins of, of meat for the cats and dogs yeah. in the shelter. And you said to them, you know, how do you choose between the two? And they, and they obviously they didn't kind of understand. No. Yeah, okay, so there's, there's that issue. But, I mean, Ronnie, are all your cats vegan? No, they're not. Um, they're not entirely vegan. I mean, um, part of their diet is, is vegan food, but... Uh, it's not entirely. They don't live entirely on a vegan diet, and and and, and it is difficult. It, it it is it is something that does cause me problems. I think one of the problems is that the possibly the the vegan food that's produced for cats isn't maybe isn't good enough. In that, the reason that they're, they're not vegan is because not, not, they, not enough meat in it, Ron. <laughs> well, I think I think it's the, the way that it's flavoured. To be honest, that more could be done in the development of of vegan food for cats that would make it so 
cats were more willing to eat it. I think the, the difficulty is, is that we've we've tried feeding our cats on an entirely vegan diet, and they end up um, not wanting to eat unless they that they'll eat you know like a, a mixture of vegan food and other food, but they won't eat entirely vegan food, and and it, and it is a problem. It is a difficult one, isn't it? Because uh, you are always aware that that other animals that what they're eating is other animals that, that have been killed and, and i think I, th I think the answer to it is is that there has to be i mean i, I want to see a world I, ideally where there aren't any domesticated dogs and cats but the way we we'd reach that is through big nutrient and spaying campaign that's that that's that's the way to to go forward with that but there is no movement for that there there is no real kind of hard-hitting national campaign for nutrient and spaying that doesn't happen um in the sense of people doing street stalls people doing demonstrations you know educating the public in a big way that 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 doesn't happen and organizations like the rspca for instance although they will finance the nutrient and spaying of cats and dogs to some extent they don't really campaign in any big way one of those issues it's one of those big issues that needs to be addressed but isn't being addressed it certainly is but then there is another argument as well that while ever we keep the rescued cats and dogs we ourselves are showing the rest of society that having a domestic captive animal is okay I couldn't believe it when I was doing a, a demonstration here in Dublin against the circus that someone brought with them their two companion animals tethered by the neck, <laughs> you know, and we're trying to say to the people going into the circus, don't go in there because these animals are in captivity and, and the conditions are bad and they're made to do this and made to do that and there's two dogs sitting there with collars and leashes doing as they're told by this person who has rescued them. Mm. Uh, you know, when I put my thinking head on as opposed to my uh, emotional, I will always say I am on the side of the animal that is in the tin or the pouch or what a, or the formula. I just don't know how anybody can justify killing animals to keep predators alive. I, th I think the reason why people have dogs in those situations is because we do have this huge problem of so-called unwanted dogs and cats that are being put down because there's not enough homes about available for them and i think people think well i've got space in my home where i could look after one of these creatures so that's what i do i'll do otherwise that creature will be killed now of course in many cases those animals will be eating other animals and will be fed other animals but i can understand the the motivation for why somebody would want to take an animal like that into their home and and maybe maybe it's one of those one of those um subjects where where you can't talk about right and wrong you've just got to look at try to uh, work out what, what is the solution to this problem 
you know what is what is the solution and and to me the solution is to is to have widespread nutrient and spay and so that in the end this huge huge problem of unwanted dogs and cats goes away and um, those animals are no lo- no longer kept in domestication i think that's the kind of thing that everyone would agree on i mean i'm sure that's something you would agree on and and it's something that people that are concerned about animals that are involved in animal protection and have those animals in their home i'm sure that's something that those people would agree on too and and as i said earlier i think i think it's it's a great shame that there isn't a campaign to try to get that to try to get that enforced to try to make that happen because there's all these people i mean i get lots of emails all the time about dogs on death row can anyone help these dogs can anyone give homes to these dogs they're due to be killed tomorrow and there's all these people desperately concerned about you know about those animals and to me that's understandable but until somebody actually starts a campaign to actually prevent this mass overproduction of dogs and cats there's never going to be a solution to the problem it's going to it's going to carry on like that forever I agree to a certain extent to what you're saying, and and of course I'm all for uh, spaying and neutering. But right from our children being born, they are taught through their toys and the images they see on the television, on you know children's programs and and what have you. They they are taught to see cats and dogs and other animals as those that are socialized and living with human animals. It's going to be an uphill slog to say to uh, all of those children, no, you can't have a pet. I still go back to the situation, uh, particularly dogs. It's not so apparent with, with cats, but particularly dogs that need to go out on walks and are out and being seen to be out with you, how can you have any credibility about saying that it is wrong to abuse and use animals when you parade your captive animal, your companion around to everybody else. I can't get my head around that. I can't I can't find a justification to say just because this animal has been turned out of its home and is now going to be put down. I've got to save that one, but I'm willing to sacrifice hundreds of other animals. I, I cannot get my head around that. I've thought long and hard about it. When I was younger, I had a companion animal. She sat on my shoulder and she walked on a leash. And, and I took her everywhere with me. And, and yes, I, was, I didn't want to lose that animal. Uh, eventually, she, she was very old when I did lose her. But how many other animals was my intervention obtaining that animals? How many other animals? died to keep her alive i can't the the sums don't add up that's obviously true that um she would have eaten i i don't know how many (laughs) probably a large number of other other creatures would have would have died to keep her alive but had she been in the wild she'd have been killing those creatures wouldn't she so so your concern is 
to do with the actual no the fact that yeah. the human intervention uh, allowed her to live in order for her to do that that's your concern say for instance that there, there was a situation of that maybe i don't know you found an animal a predator that was injured in the wild you treated that animal and made the animal better and then that animal went back into the wild and, and carried on killing and, and eating food to, in order to survive. Are you saying that it would be wrong to intervene in that circumstance and that animal, that the human being should allow the animal to die rather than to intervene? Because that with the human intervening and um, allowing the animal to recover or, or, or making the animal better, that creature would then go on to kill others because it's a kind of similar sort of situation, isn't it? It is, but there's a, a there's a, a huge difference in an animal that's in the wild that becomes injured in some way. If that animal could easily be reintroduced into its own habitat, that's where I come from. It's own habitat, not to, into a, a habitat. I mean, domestic dogs and cats released into the into the environment. They most of them wouldn't make it. They couldn't make it. They've been so domesticated. They're dependent on on human beings. But say I came across I don't know any animal uh, out in the wild, and it was easily reintegrated. It's only going back into its own habitat. If, however, it's injured so badly that it could never be released back into the, the wild, then I can't see anything wrong with leaving it to be somebody else's meal because that's what happens to free-living creatures. If they get themselves injured, if they fight amongst themselves, you know, for supremacy and one is injured, that one will die, but it will become somebody else's meal, somebody else that's living a free life. But it's not the fault of dogs and cats that are domesticated. It's not the fault of those animals that they're in that situation. I mean, that that's a result of a crime committed by human beings yes. hundreds of yes. thousands of years ago whereby those animals were taken and domesticated and and that's that that's perpetuated today so do we compound that crime by killing other animals to keep them alive i think if somebody said to me i'm not going to you know as you do said to me i'm not going to have those animals even rescued animals which is to me that's the only justifiable reason for having a dog or a cat is if it's if that animal's rescued you know there's no you know it's it, it's entirely wrong to get those creatures from a breeder or from a pet shop because then you're perpetuating that industry but i can, personally can un obviously understand it where people have rescued animals so i can understand why people do that i can also understand if, if people don't want to do that because of their concern about the other animals that that would be killed to keep those animals alive. But but I think it's one of those situations where it's kind of, there isn't a right or a wrong. You know, I think there's, I, th I think there's just a way forward, which is campaigning for, for neutering and spaying. People will still want to breed animals for pets. But then we have to, camp we have to explain 
why that why that's wrong. We have to explain why it's not right to support the uh, the pet industry, and that would be be part of I see would be part of that same campaign. You know, the, the campaign for you know the nutrient and spaying of animals, but also campaign against those organisations and commercial interests that were actually perpetuating the breeding of those creatures. This is a difficult issue for me, but I think I think that Lynn's position is a very big challenge to animal advocates in general. You know, there, there is an, an issue, I mean, like, you, you've got, what is it, 24, 25 cats? 25 cats, yes, yeah. Yeah, okay. You know, Carolyn, you, you know, you, you've got a, a rescued cat living with you. We have four cats living with us. Uh, unless they can all live completely as vegans, and they can't do that if we let them out, or even if, in a sense of a dog, we take them for a walk, there is still a risk that they will kill someone else. And so consequently, there's almost, we're in the kind of Ingrid Newkirk situation here. You know, we're in the situation where the best thing to do, actually, is to start killing non-humans ourselves to save others. I find this to be a kind of terrible kind of moral dilemma. Because, for example, we we have uh, vegan food for the cats. Not all of them take to it. And they don't have it all the time in the same sense that you you just said, Ronnie. Yes, yeah. And so yes. You know, other animals are being killed in order to sustain these predators. At the same time, we've got a kitten, you know, who needs milk. Right. This milk is obviously a um, a product of the of the dairy industry. Mm, yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, in a kind of utilitarian sense, the you know, probably the best thing to do would be to humanely kill the kitten rather than keep her alive. And in in some sense, that then means that we're in a kind of crazy scenario now where the logic of this scenario is that animal advocates advertise to take in non-humans, uh, predators, in order for them, them themselves to then kill them. Because that, you know, in a utilitarian sense, is the best thing to do. The less dogs and cats there are in the world, the, the better it is for the indigenous free-living animals in the world, because that means there's going to be less cats out there killing birds and everyone else. And there are, the less dogs there are. You see, this is a terribly, terribly difficult thing. I mean, not, not only is it difficult for us even to think about it, it, it'd be an absolute nightmare to try and sell this to the movement and, you know, try and sell this to the to the media and the general public. It's just a, a no-go area in the first place. But we can see the argument, can't we? The, the fact that there's a terrible kind yes. of dilemma yes. here. Yes, Yeah. And I think we feel it, don't we? I, I mean, I, you know, I feel it when I'm feeding meat and animal products to our cats. You know, I feel that dilemma all the time. I'm, I'm sure you do, Roger, with yours. It is very difficult. It's yes. I, I mean, I think it's true that if if you're in a situation where you're, you know, we're trying to educate people to to be vegan. No, but Ronnie, but we're talking about our own behaviour here, aren't we? Yes. We're, we're, yeah. We're, yes. Yeah. We're talking about prioritising, like like Lynn said, we're prioritising the non-humans that we rescue over the ones in the tin. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, how can we do that as well, an animal rights campaign? Well, be, be, because it's one of those things where there's the two alternatives either 
we feed them the animals in the tin or we kill them or we allow, or allow them to die. But the thing is, Ronnie, we know that the animals in the tin have been tortured and gone through the slaughter process. Yes. Whereas we can have these animals that we have in, under our control killed in a, in a pretty, you know, relatively speaking, humane way by a vet. Right? Yes, but you see, yeah. Which, which, which yeah. the animals in the tin can never, can never experience. No. And so consequently, we should kill them all, shouldn't we? There's another question that you have to answer, I think, that is important and that is what is wrong with with the keeping of pets like everything well (laughs) well, Well, the easy answer for the keeping of uh, carnivorous pets is that they eat other animals right well let's let's Uh, let's deal with let's deal with the the non-easy answer so i i have a pet and the pet is a natural herbivore so what's wrong with keeping the pet it seems to me that what's wrong with keeping the pet is that the pet has an interest in not being a pet. The animal doesn't yes. want to be a pet. So yes. it's it seems because I agree with you, Lynn, that it's wrong to keep other animals captive. I'm less concerned with how do we reckon with the notion of what do we feed the animals that we keep captive. If I say, which I do, I don't believe in the keeping of pets, then I can't rescue animals. I can't keep rescued cats in my home. Because I don't believe in the keeping of pets. And I don't see how I can say that it's wrong for the individual to be kept as a pet. But Tim, there's a a more complicated issue here. Say, for example, you're offered the opportunity to rescue and you say no. Then that means that the animal, as it were, may be offered to a, a meat eater who might say yes. So that's no challenge to me. I don't. I don't understand why that's a challenge. Animals die in the wild all the time, and I don't do anything to help them. I don't see why it's any different. I totally, totally agree with what you've just said. You know, it's mind-numbing to think that you would reject someone who needs help, but at the same time, if you are against the keeping of pets, if you are against the use and the abuse of animals, you cannot do it. And I go back to what I said about numbers. You you kill hundreds to keep a carnivore alive, hundreds in its lifetime, and you are doing that. And I, I, I'd like to just read you uh, something that I took off the uh, one of the chats. It was uh, somebody called Will, but not Tuttle. Um, uh, and it was it was in it was actually in relation. Is there another Will without being Tuttle? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, it was in, in response to a question about arson, but I think it it really sums up where I think we get ourselves into because we don't use our pragmatic head, we use our emotions over the animals. It says, he, he said, I'm fed up with animal people being casual and uncaring about when we kill the animals while we go apeship when others do it. And I'm talking, I'm applying that to the animals in the tin and the packet and the, the mixture that goes into keeping these carnivores alive. I'm sorry, I just can't get my head around that bit. Going back to the, the um, thing about keeping animals in captivity, I think I would rather be 
kept in a prison where I was quite well looked after than executed. And I think that's that's the, what the reality is for, for these dogs and cats. You know, leaving aside other considerations, yeah. that's the reality that, that, you know, if they weren't rescued and kept in captivity, then they would be killed. Yes, yeah. there's no third. There's no third option. Ronnie, what you should be doing there then is keeping them in captivity and enforce a vegan diet on them. How, yeah, I was, I got, yes, was going to ask you, Ronnie, but what, in prison, were you allowed to have the diet of your choice? Not as I would have had it necessarily, but yes, I mean, I was, I was given a vegan diet. Yes. Okay, so what if the alternative was not to be in prison with your diet, but you were force-fed secretions and, and, and flesh of other animals? Would you then take that over being executed? I wouldn't. That's not, I don't think that's, that's a parallel because I don't think it causes the animals particularly to suffer because they're fed food out of a tin. That's not making them suffer, That you know, that they're they're kind of eating it and and they're thriving so it's it's, it's not really the same as that that, that that's the situation I, I think the reason is because because you see people see that they can save those animals immediately and those animals are immediately in front of them you know when people take in rescued animals whereas the animals that are slaughtered for food are a bit more at a distance and i know those you know the lives of those animals are are of equal value and it doesn't matter that they're, so to speak, more at a distance. But I think that, you know, that's why that's why people rescue animals. And, and, and yes, it it is an emotional thing. But I suppose human beings are primarily emotional creatures. And I think another problem I'd have with it is because, we, we you know, we, we're trying to educate people to be vegan. We, we're trying to persuade people to change their attitudes towards animals. If we became more callous or perceived to be were perceived to be more callous towards domesticated animals. I, f I feel that might make it harder for us to get a message across to the public and that tactically it, would, it might well be a mistake. I can't really see that because, like Tim just said, he, he, he wouldn't accept a rescued animal and he, he lives pet-free. Millions of people live pet-free. You, you are actually advertising that it's okay to have a captive animal every time you see, you're seen with that animal. So wouldn't, wouldn't it be pet-free and vegan be a better role model to go out there and persuade people? They're not, well, I don't regard them as pets. I regard them as refugees. You know, they're refugees from... from, from the rest of the world, the, the rest of the world sees them as well, pets, though, Ronnie. Pets, exactly. Yes, I mean, because it's the same, it's the same, it's the same as saying there are lots of things that we say we do because we don't want other people to think that we're participating in, in the exploitation of others. And so we refrain from doing things that could be seen as being supportive of a system that we don't support. And so we just don't do it because we don't want people to be confused by our message. Well, I don't see how in the world you can you can keep pets and not confuse people as to what it is that you believe. I think, to be honest, and I and I and I don't want to offend anybody, but I probably will anyway, and I apologize for that. I think people rescue animals because they like to I, they like to be in the company of other animals. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, 
the feeling that people want to be in the company of other animals. I don't think there's anything wrong with that because we've bred other animals. I mean, you can do dogs are very interesting creatures because they've been bred to be very interesting creatures. They get along with us in a way that other animals don't because they've evolved with us over about some say as much as a hundred thousand years. And been exploited along the way, of course. Well, Jim. of course, yes, absolutely. But all I'm saying is, is that it's quite natural for people to be drawn to the keeping of pets because it's in our DNA. You I know, completely we're, we're, agree with that. I don't think it's unnatural for people who consider themselves animal people, which is what everybody says they are, right? They're animal people, and part of that means that they like being around other animals. I just think it's wrong, that's all. It's perfectly understandable. I just think it's wrong. You're listening to AOZone podcast number 22 with guest Lynn Yates. Just to say that Lynn had made some excellent points, and I totally agree with what you said too, Tim. That I like totally agree that most humans choose to keep other animals as as their pets because it's what they want to do. It's not really so much for the other animals' benefit; it's for their own benefit. So I think, but I think, despite Lynn making some excellent points, I think that most humans run on emotions and. Despite what we say and despite the, the the facts, I think it's difficult to tell people that they can't live with the other animals that they enjoy spending their time with and, and sharing their lives with. I mean, once another animal enters your home, they become part of your family. Yes. I agree with that. I've thought for a long time. I wrote a blog post about this a while back, and I caught a lot of flack for it because mm. my. And I'm sure, Lynn, that you probably do as well, because this is a this is not like a majority viewpoint on what we ought to do about the companion animal problem. But my solution is sanctuaries. That's what I say. I say that individual ownership of other animals ought to stop, and there ought to be as you know uh, there ought to be an institutionalized response in the way of a sanctuary. And all the forced breeding and all of the uh, accidental breeding should be curbed, but that individuals ought not to own other animals, and that the best we can do is put them in sanctuaries. I, I, I would go along that route, personally. I think the thing that we have to do is realize that there are just problems for which there are no good answers. There just aren't. There are no good answers to some of these problems. And the reason I bring that up, I mean, is because I, I, I think that I think that that we get caught in trying to answer questions that can't be answered, and I think that we just have to be able to say we can't answer that question. That doesn't feel good because you want to be able to answer these questions, but there are some questions that we just can't answer. We have a problem at the moment where, first of all, there's a huge overproduction of animals like dogs and cats and even rabbits and creatures like that rats and mice even, these creatures are being produced for the, the pet trade and a large number of them end up being slaughtered because there aren't enough homes available for them. 
So what's the, the resolution to that problem, along with the ethical issue of animals being kept in captivity anyway? You know, how do we move forward on that? What should we do in order to try to resolve that situation? What measures need to be put in place in order to solve that problem or, or make that less of a problem? And, and it's the same kind of thinking as to, you know, the huge number of animals slaughtered on, on the road. You know, how do we move towards lessening that problem? You know, what pro practical measures can we undertake? If I can indulge myself as a sociologist now and ask Lynn a question about, uh, I always tell the story, Lynn, about when you were a teacher, science teacher, you used to talk to the students about the animal, vegetable and mineral distinction and you used to represent a human being as the animal part and you used to get kind of like objections didn't you almost like on a yearly basis is that is that right that is right i mean to, trying to get children to accept the fact that they are animals is really very difficult and i was teaching secondary school children so we're talking about from the age of 11 upwards and even those that got to 13 and 14 and we're looking at classification of uh, of organisms you look at the natural world and, and living organisms and dip, break it down and so you know you get to the fact that there's the two main groups uh, plants and animals and get them to come up with ideas of uh, you know what sort of organisms would you put in each of these categories? And never, ever, I, I, I don't think I've ever, in all my years of teaching, had a child who has put human beings in there. And so the, then the, 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 the uh, conversation goes, well, what about us? And they look at you and you say, well, are we living creatures as well? Are we living organisms? Well, are we alive? Yes, we're alive. Well, where are you going to put them? Are you going to put them in the plant one or in the animal one? <laughs> are we plants? No, we're not plants. That we could, they, they're pretty so, true than are, that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you say, so we must be animals. Oh, no, no, we're not animals, Bruce. That's it. It's not nice saying that, to, to calling me an animal. If they haven't got that message by the time they're about 14, it's shocking how they've well, got... Th the thing is, from, from our point of view, I, mean, I, know, I know for a fact that um, myself and Carolyn and Tim, you know, we take part in these kind of public forums where mm. we can do vegan education with the public. You know, people are very resistant to self-identify as animals. Mm -hmm. They won't self-identify as mammals and they certainly won't self-identify as apes, even though all that is true. Right. And so consequently, that then kind of leads to them having all kinds of confusion about, you know, like milk, for example, because they, they don't seem to make any connection with the fact that, you know, milk is something to do with mammals. You know, these kind of mm -hmm. fundamental kind of mm -hmm. things, you know, it, it's almost like you've got a, um, a society which is in denial, stroke, ignorance. Yes. Yeah, and, yes. and you, you were kind of seeing it in the, in the classroom. That's right. And if if you go back and look at the uh, specifications for what is taught in, in British schools, they should be taught about living organisms right from 
year two, which is their third year in school. So we're talking about uh, seven-year-old children. And that's when they're, they're introduced with it to this idea. They're already talking about animals and plants, of course, but in a scientific way, we start talking to them when they're about seven. And then seven years later, because... Well, I think it's because of language, everyday language. How many times do you say, look, those people, they're they're acting like animals. Well, they can't act like anything else because that is what they are. uh, But but that's not what it means, does it? It's saying that to be like an animal is is a derogatory. Yeah, culturally, it, yeah. to say someone else than an animal is an insult, isn't it? It is. It is an insult, and so you battle your way through, uh, convincing them that 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 yes, they are going to sit in that that, that column of animals, but they just don't want to accept it, and and I think we've got such such a way to go and and language is one of the things that I think we've got to look at Uh, the way that we looked at it when I was part of the feminist movement trying to remove from our language all of those sexist words and phrases that people used and I think we've got to do the same in animal rights we've got to get the language right and we've got to get that language out in into um into society so that they don't look upon an animal as being inferior they can't because it, they're one of them yes mm-hmm. yeah absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. a lot of people like for example if you think of someone like claire fox from the institute of ideas which is like a marxist thing and she appears on um, a British thing called the uh, Moral Maze. She objects to the idea that human beings are reduced to be mere animals, which I don't think is the same thing. I don't think anybody's saying that we're only animals, in a sense. But the fact is we're saying we are animals. And I, mm-hmm. I think that that kind of fundamental truth is kind of, you know, we're, we're in, in a sense of denial over it for all kinds of reasons, because we, we want to exploit animals so consequently we can't be animals ourselves well that's right and and isn't there also and i know i know i don't know how it is in the rest of the world but i know that in the united states unfortunately that because of the history of slavery and racism in this country that people of color african-american descent particularly were referred to and were called animals for a long long time and so there's there's a deeper problem i think in this country with that kind of terminology. I believe that it's also a problem with the terminology of talking about abolition because there's a cultural weight to that term in the United States. As again, I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world, but I but I know for a fact that it's a problem for people. I've talked to people about it and it's a problem for them to talk about animals in terms of slavery and abolition and so forth because of the particular meanings of those words in our culture it's a bit similar to the, to the use of the word holocaust isn't it in mm-hmm. Europe, where mm-hmm. where this if, if you use holocaust in relation to what happens to animals there can be huge objections to that because of course it's um, normally taken as referring to the um to the jewish people that were massacred by the nazis mm-hmm. whereas i think the true the actual true meaning of holocaust is something that can be used in relation to animals 
but because it was it was used to refer to the you know to, to the the slaughter of the Jews, people object to it now. Yeah. Well, many people object to it now being used uh, and uh, in relation to animals, and, and and that's a kind of probably a similar thing that is is more in relation to Europe. Thing to do with like the ownership of ideas, you know, like for example, another word for the Holocaust is Shoah. And, you know, some people kind of quip that there's no business like show a business. And so it's a it's a it's a situation of of in some senses, um, you know, Jews have kind of claimed the Holocaust for themselves only, if you like. Although it was never the case in the first place, because in the sense that, uh, you know, Roman is and homosexual and and, um, and other lesser than uh, human beings were part of um, the extermination program. Yes. It was never a Jewish thing in the first place. No, uh, no, not entirely. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. And so the, the, there's a lot of kind of politics and claims making going on in, in this issue, I think. Yeah, I agree. Lynn, can you talk about your feminism? And you said when you, you said, I think you said when you were active in feminism, which I, I take to mean that you're not anymore. Can you talk about feminism <laughs> and, and how it relates to <laughs> what, what you're... <laughs> controversial, controversial. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it depends what you say, what you mean. You're not in it anymore. I, I I tend to join movements and and then go off and do my own thing. I'm I'm I, I'm not really a club person. Um, I'm a bit of a loner and and I like to think out things and then live my life according to it, accordingly. Uh, so yeah, it, it was. Uh, Back in the uh, um, the eighties, I was teaching in a girls' school, and uh, in inner city Bradford, it's a an old mill town, uh, well city, uh, in the middle of uh, of Yorkshire, and it is one of the centres where there is a huge, well, about a third of the population. Their families originated in the Mirpur district of Pakistan. And uh, so the vast number of uh, children in our school, it was a girls' school, were of Pakistani origin. And of course, because we were an all-girls school, that was the school of choice for all of those families because they didn't want their uh, girls to come into contact with the boys but there were uh, there were a lot of issues that were thrown up which feminist issues I I was a a year leader and I had 16 members of staff and we looked after 180 girls and when I went and interviewed them uh, before they came into the school I used to put the word waiting against some of them because it was quite clear that their aspirations was they were going to marry one of their cousins from back home, bring him over and have children and that was their destiny. And they, they were, those children were, were happy to do it, but there were a lot of other children that weren't. So... I think it was that experience that took me into the feminist m- movement. And, and so I, I worked in groups 
connected with the local uh, council and with the uh, education department on equality issues. It was all about equality, not only for the girls themselves, but also for the teachers, because at that time it was it we still hadn't got equal play for an equal job. So the women in the school were uh, teachers were earning less money for doing the same job as the men that were in the school. And as usual, they uh, all the heads of the department, bar none, were was man. We did have a um, female head. That was the one positive decision the school said that the uh, the girls' schools would have a woman at the head. So I it, I was working uh, as I said in these groups to involve the police because they had a unit which looked after girls that were oppressed by their families. And it was absolutely a wonderful thing to do because the girls themselves had their own aspirations and they didn't want to go down the, I'm leaving school as soon as I can. So these groups worked with the families uh, uh, to get some reasonable equality with their brothers in terms of their education. And I was always also involved with from the you know the drive to equality within the pay structure for the teachers and things like that. So that that that's where I was coming coming from. I I was instrumental with others organising huge conferences and and events all around these issues. Lynn, do you see there to be a link? between the commodification of other animals and the commodification of human animals? Uh, absolutely. I, uh, I think the abuse of uh, animals is a practice ground for some, some people to, as to how they will t- treat uh, other humans in the future. I, I really have no doubt in that way, including, of course, how, how men treat women. After working in that girls' school for some 13 years, I, I moved to another school, which was a what we call an e, EBD school, which means that the children that go there have emotional and behavioural difficulties. Well, the school was in two halves, and I worked in the ones that dealt with the boys, all all boys, that had uh, behavioural difficulties. I, I used to describe them as the sort of uh, sort of boys that would pick up a chair uh, and throw it. They wouldn't stop at any uh, level of violence. In my first year in there, I had a boy in my class who had put his teacher in a wheelchair for life by uh, knocking him to the floor and throwing a desk on top of him. I worked with that boy for, for three years. The number of times that he told me of his of the sorts of things he did as a child and much of it was around animal abuse. He had killed a cat. He had, uh, you know, he had kicked dogs. He had, he had done all sorts of things which were abusive for those animals. And there he was, this violent young man, who 
you know, would if he if he couldn't get his own way, would flare and be violent to us. I mean, I, I, as a teacher, I, I trained in restraint methods and things like that. And, uh, you know, I sat for half an hour restraining that young man to get him down so that he doesn't kill the, the, the last person he was uh, having a fight with. But I'm absolutely certain that those animals suffered as practices to what was happening later on in life. And that was mirrored throughout the 10 years that I, learned, I, I worked in that sector with boys, or, or always with boys, every one of them had some, some sort of animal story to tell. And it was harrowing, absolutely harrowing, because they didn't know where my, my you know, they didn't know, they knew I was a vegan, because in all the schools that I've been in, I have taught classes in whether it's in food technology or in personal and uh, social education. I have always taught every uh, person in the school about veganism, you know, done tasters and, and uh, animal rights. And that's when you got even more in, in the, the EBD school. That's when you get your stories when you talked about it, you wanted to afford other animals' rights. Um, before you were talking about, Lynn, um, we were talking about language in the movement, and I wondered, you you have a particular take on that? Yes. Uh, when I first came to the AR Zone, I read quite a lot of the uh, transcripts and, uh, and other information on there, and the question that I had for Roger when I saw him was, well, who is this aimed at? Is this an academic talking shop? Or are you aiming it for anybody who could become in, in, involved with animal rights? And, and so, of course, he said, well, it's really for an, anybody. Well, I said, then, then the language is not appropriate that you use. I'm an educated woman. I've been to university. I've I, I've been in education for you know what seems like donkey's years. And is that a species term? That is, isn't yeah. it? I shouldn't have. Worked. I didn't say. Years. I I I, I, I um, stand corrected, but there were certain parts of the of some of the uh, transcripts that I looked at. And I had to read them three times to get the gist of what was said. So Roger's been nagging me to... Total life hopes. <laughs> uh, to, to actually give some examples. All of you are obviously well-read. You cite people all the time, especially Roger. And I might, I might say I think Roger's one of the worst offenders on this. We um, think so too. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I agree now, with him. <laughs> now, if you think the reading and comprehension age in the UK, the average, have a guess what it is in adults in the UK. No, the, the, like on a grade level or on a... An age level. What, do they, what age, do they, in terms of reading and comprehension, do they work at? Twelve. Eight. Yeah. Right? I, I heard that gasp. Isn't, isn't yeah. that... Yeah, wow. 
isn't isn't that the uh, the age that the tabloids are? Uh, yes, yeah. yes. So, so the, the, all our tabloids, uh, newspapers are written for age eight. Now, if you think about that, if you're going to use rights jargon, then you've got to be certain that you somewhere along the line really explain what this means, because. If I couldn't understand it on a first reading, what chance does somebody that's got the reading age of, of eight have in understanding what you mean? Now, this doesn't mean to say we've got to go, you know, never to introduce the phrases, but you've got to remember all the time you're getting new people in. I was a new per person once and I, I sat and I, I saw this thing unfold in the chat and some of it, it was so in language, into, it was jargon. It took me a while to un, uh, unravel that jargon. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Oh, f first of all, a really simple one. There was a, an information sheet that was put out by Animal Aid, right? Now, the, the language is about the right level, but it, it, it said... The pain, the, the pain system in fish is virtually the same as in bird and animals. What's I couldn't what, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Yeah. What does it mean? Does it mean a fish is not an animal? Does it mean birds are not an animal? In a fish, it is the same as in birds and animals. It they actually mean means mammals. Yeah. Well, if we don't get it right, how can I, how can I get people to understand that eating fish is not acceptable eating birds is not acceptable vegetarians they'll tell you i'm vegetarian i don't eat animals but i do eat fish and i do eat chicken we've got to get that right that's not acceptable to me those three categories are all other animals now let's go on to uh, something I found in here. It's it's I think this is lovely. I purposely went into Roger's blog. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it nice when you can get that somewhere? Yeah. It's beat up the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Go on. Right. I'm going to get your question. I'm just going to read you a few lines. It says, essentially, this formulation of the new is similar to the preservation of a crude, we uh, is it Weberian? Weberian. Weberian ideal type. <laughs> A concept, an act. I think the problem is that you can't read, isn't it? No, I can't read. <laughs> <laughs> Abstracting tool used in society, right? I haven't a clue what that yeah, means. Yeah, yeah, but that's... Just, 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 just let me finish. Oh, right. right. <laughs> I, I haven't got... Well... I haven't got... I haven't got an inkling of what that means, right? So what... Roger is really, really good then. He, get, he explains what that means. Okay, and he, he goes on to explain it in two paragraphs, 250 words. Now, remember, you, you, some of your people that are visiting it will have a, a, a reading age anywhere from 8 to 16. That's, it, they only go up to 16, right? 
So will they plough through this next 250 words? He says, and what he really wanted to say was that it was looking at battery cages and, and enhanced battery cages. What he really wanted to say that the comparison of the present system together with the grime of many years with a new, clean, modern system is misleading. That's all it meant. 21 <laughs> words. And he took nearly 300. It's called academia. Right. What's that with you? It's called academia, but is yeah. your audience, are they all academics? No, I, t- I take your point. Yeah. yeah. I enjoyed doing that at his expense, obviously. But, um, <laughs> I enjoyed but do, it too. Do, 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 do you understand what I mean? When yeah, yeah, okay. But, this, but what, what do AirZone do about that? I mean, you're talking about me here, but I mean, you're talking yeah. about AirZone in more general. Mm. I mean, are we talking about dumbing down? I mean, is that what you're saying? It, it, is it dumbing down to say yeah, it more clearly? It is. Yeah. Because all I'm saying is you need to be clearer in what you mean. This reading age uh, of eight means that both in comprehension and in actually reading the, the words, they will struggle with three and more syllables in one word. I don't want people to write in in words of one syllable. That's not the answer. That's not the answer at all. But if you are going to use phrases and words like advocates, claims making, uh, circumvented, abolition, adhering, when there's other alternatives that were clearer, if you need to use those words, if you are, think are you, those... Are you saying that every, every one of those is, is a difficult... Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because you, because you did say that the word vivisection was an issue, didn't you? If I went into my... So what would you use instead of vivisection? Animal experimentation, which is a big, long word. Yeah, but uh, they, the experiment is one that's banged into them, isn't it? Ex, an experiment means. Yeah. Because because they've been doing experiments when when uh, Jamie my um, grandson was uh, was five he so, came so, home so, and so, told me yeah, he'd done an experiment uh, at school. Okay, so somebody at a reading age of eight won't have a problem with the word experiment, but they they will be completely lost with the word vivisection. Yeah, they they will not know that what that word is. They'll, I mean, they will never have heard it before, will they? A lot of people won't have heard it before now. Yeah. It's a specialist one, and 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 be. I, I mean, by all means, put it in there, but tell them yes. what it is. It, well, well, obviously there's, there's um, a distinction to make here because you know we we as kind of AI's own people, if you like, control what we say, but we can't obviously go no. to control what the guests say. No, because because I've got another a short one by David uh, Nybert. Oh, some, oh, somebody apart from me. Oh, good. Yeah, Someone's yeah. <laughs> I do believe oh, that. Have a, have a go at him. Well. That's not so much fun. I do believe that advocates for other animals, especially advocacy beyond those labelled as pets, are treated with considerable reproach. What's wrong with that? That is, that is difficult. They won't is know it? what reproach means. See, I don't have a problem with that. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think somebody with a reading age of eight will know what the, the, the meaning of the word reproach is. So what do we say instead? Can, well, I, just what, ask, what is, can I just ask, Lynn, when you say the average read, reading age in the UK is eight, is that like the average reading age in the UK is eight or is that what the media directs? No, it, it is. 
It is. One of the ways that education has uh, increased pass rates, because obviously if you don't increase your pass rate, you get that's what you're being judged on. And one of the ways of doing it is lowering the age that the exams are set at. The reading age that is sat at, so the questions are so much easier for them to be able to access. And in support of what you said, actually, Lynn, I did know somebody when I when I was involved in Manchester with the uh, the Northern Liberation League in Nanal. I actually knew somebody who worked at the BBC, and her job was to take out the three syllable words. Yeah. You know, so that the reporters would would write them, and she would rewrite them to take it all out. Yeah because they knew that most of the audience couldn't understand them. Lynn said earlier that the uh, the newspapers, or at least the tabloids, aim what they write mm. at a reading age of eight. Mm. And that's because they're very clever, because, of course, they, they exist to, um, to try to manipulate people to a, a particular political viewpoint and a particular way of living. And they're very clever, because in doing that, they're using language that they know those people understand. Yes. They know that... That they're taking people for what people are, not for what some imaginary concept of what they hope people might be, or or, or we might hope people might be. They know that that's the reading age of people, and so they publish their newspapers accordingly. And we need to do the same. We need to take people for what they are, not for what we'd like people to be. Most people aren't academics. Most people are quite, you know, I don't like to to kind of use anything that might sound insulting, but m most people are, are quite limited in, in a sense in terms of what they can grasp and what they can understand. I mean, they don't sprinkle their um, their discourse with Latin terms, you mean? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, things, we, must, we mustn't think that other people are the same as us, you know, that we can kind of, you know, sometimes use complicated language because, you know, we've had a certain education or we've been advantaged in certain ways and so, so we can use more complicated language and we can talk in these kind of intricate philosophical terms sometimes. Most people can't do that. The world is, is made up mostly of, of those people and th those are the people we're aiming at. Those are the people we're aiming at to change and so therefore we have to take those people for what they are. Yeah, I understand that, Ronnie. And going back to Lynn here, your critique, and I'm taking it on the chin here, is about my language and it's about Nybert's language, but it would apply to Tim as well in terms of his blog, I'm sure, which you, you haven't um, analysed, and I'm, I'm sorry that I haven't put it in front of you in that sense, but so you could have a go at him as well. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, what, but the, 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 the question that is begged then is what, what do we do? No. Well, you know, the people that come to your to to the AA zone uh, will be right across the spectrum, and those that have been coming for a long time, and and they come all the time, and they get, come up to all the chats, and they stay, and they contribute the, to them. They've learnt the language. Every sort of group of people will get its own language, it'll build its own jargon. I used to be a, a teacher governor at the girls' school that I told you about, and the, the head and the deputy used to report to the governing body because it's the governing body that actually employs all the teachers and has responsibility for the school. 
on that governing body, they were counsellors and they were te uh, parents and they were uh, teachers and any other in interested people in the community. And we had a, a deputy head who would put something on the table and he would, he, he would use educational uh, jargon. And I would sit there, I would think, Nobody's going to understand that. So I, I, I would stick my uh, head above the parapet and say, uh, I'm sorry, Alan, but I, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. And if I, in, in education, are not clear, I'm sure there's people around the table that won't be, because nobody's going to ask, are they? they? Nobody wants to appear to be dim exactly. and, and not understanding. They don't want to do that. So I was the one that always put my hand up and said, I, I mean, you see, you, the look on his face, he knew what was coming. <laughs> so what he would do is he would just reel off the same spiel as he'd, he'd done before, but slower. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and pro probably a bit Typical louder, man. you know, this is, this is, this is, if somebody doesn't, if somebody doesn't understand you, you say it slower and you say it louder. So it's like the English when they go abroad, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So what I used to do then is paraphrase what he said. So what you're telling me is, and I used to give an interpretation uh, for, for the people. Now, you've got to do that yourselves. You've got to look at your language. You, you've got to say, what, what, you're not talking to people that aren't intelligent, that don't know, that they really want to know what you've got to offer, but they're not familiar with the jargon. So you have to get in, in that stuff that is meant for everybody. You, even if you want to introduce the jargon, you have to explain it. But you don't have to take 250 words to explain it. <laughs> yeah? In, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so, is that helpful? I think it's really I, I, helpful, Lynn. I've actually yeah. brought this topic up in the past before. I've had friends and, and acquaintances that have said to me that they're uncomfortable participating in, in debate or participating in any sort of discussions in AR Zone because they feel that it's a little bit difficult to yeah. contribute because they're not comfortable in doing so for the reasons that you mentioned. So I think I think it's an excellent point that you bring up and I think it's definitely something that should be addressed. I think it's really important because we don't want to be excluding anybody for any reason. I think that what we do is way too important to be doing that. So I think I, th I think you make loads of sense and totally agree with you. I agree too. And I think one of the last things that you said is important for us to remember. And I, th what, you, what you said was is it's not that people are not intelligent and it's not that people aren't capable of understanding what we're talking about. You know, sometimes when we talk about these things, we want to say, well, people are smart and they can get it. Well, of course people are smart and they can get it, but if they've never heard the words before and if the concepts are new to them, then it really doesn't matter how smart they are. They have to, they have to learn – they have to know what the words mean in order, in order to understand them. And if they've never heard the words before and if they're words that are used in a strange context – and only we know what we mean by them, then we have to take the time to explain them. So I, I think what you said is really important.
discussed um, a while back regarding carnivorous animals being kept in captivity and therefore other animals having to be killed to keep them alive. I mean, what about the situation with carnivorous plants? Because they, you know, they obviously kill any animals which may well be sentient. Have, have you got a particular opinion about what should happen with them? Yes. Um, There's a sort of short answer. I, I go back to the ecological systems that exist in the in the wild and it, carnivorous plants are only found in certain habitats and every member in that habitat has its role whether it's a plant or it's an animal i was listening into a chat when somebody asked would it be a reasonable thing given that these are not sentient organisms, that to kill them off because they consume mainly invertebrate animals. I was a bit perturbed by this because the mess we are in, in the world, is all human-made. And it stems mainly from humans interfering with ecosystems now, that, those carnivorous plants are there in the e ecosystem and they are doing the job, a job, in that system. And I don't think it's up to us to say, because it, it, it actually consumes insects, that therefore it's, it's our enemy. This is as much a part of that ecosystem as any of the animals are. And they are so interlinked that we keep on doing it. And we are in, in the world, we are, uh, you know, we are reaping what we are sowing with the what I call not climate change, but climate chaos that it's in that, uh, you know, and it's all because people keep interfering with ecosystems so my answer is we don't know the extent of what that plant is in there but that plant will be somebody's dinner as well as it, it having its own dinner and there is a balance in there and so I don't think we should be in the in the business of eradicating something which is in a natural habitat. So I am I'm totally, totally against uh, the killing of carnivorous plants, which, you know, I, I know it sounds funny to have that as an issue, but I first saw it brought up on a, a, a chat. And so it, it's some people are thinking and contemplating that this might be an action that they should take. Just leading on from that, Lynn, I mean, would, would you say in, in, in brief that the killing of carnivorous plants may well cause more animal suffering than not killing the plants? Yes. Um, yes. At the second question, in terms of, in general, the destruction of ecosystems, doesn't this go right back to the Middle Ages or perhaps before that, that when um, all, all the forests were, were destroyed? I mean... England, for instance, was was mostly woodland um, at one time, um, but that was that was destroyed many hundreds of years ago. 
would you say that that was wrong that 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 actually happened yes again is a short answer because what what's what's happened the bigger sin than than cutting even than cutting down the trees is getting rid of the um the large predators like wolves for instance that has caused a knock-on effect that there are no large predators to regulate the number of large herbivores we've got now they primarily deer are destroying their own habitat because there's just so many of them and so conservation groups are now culling these animals and so upsetting that that total system that that, that whole ecosystem has led to environmental chaos. We can't step in and do something else. We might do the, do the same thing. Uh, would, you, would you say that this really originates from human overpopulation? Because obviously the reason why all those trees were cut down all those hundreds of years ago and the predators were killed, etc., was because a need was felt to do that in order to you know, su- supply the, 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 the human population with building materials etc um it? yeah uh, to an extent i mean uh, the wolves were persecuted because they uh, they're carnivores and and people are naturally don't want carnivores to be in the environment that they want to live in so we go and uh, we go into the there uh, the middle of wales where it's mountainous and scotland where it's mountainous and we actually take up residence there as human settlements and and of course the uh, the wolves be, would be a threat particularly to children and people that are working in the fields the vast majority of our big trees uh, a lot of them wasn't they, they they weren't cleared to allow us to live in that environment they were cleared and the big trees uh, were taken not necessarily for house building, or so, some of it was, of course, but it was mainly for ship, shipping, so that this wonderful island of ours and the people in it can send off their sailors and create an empire. And that's where, that, that's where a, a great swathes of, uh, of our country was deforestated for adventures in other places, including uh, Australia and the US. So it, it, it is always, it is always down to what humans have done. That's why I'm so passionate that since we've got largely, we have some settled ecosystems, particularly the wetlands, which are really important to, as I said, to biodiversity, to upset those settled habitats, even though originally they were woodland, but they're now wetland, it it still would cause a disaster there. Going to the issue of what uh, humans have done, I think Carolyn's got a question about dead zones in terms of rivers and estuaries and seas. Carolyn? Lynn, I was hoping to ask you a question about the dead zones throughout the world's oceans. It's something that I find particularly important. I think it's very important for other people to be aware of the state of the world's oceans. 
I find that people find it very easy to ignore the oceans and the inhabitants of the ocean because they're, they're so hidden. But I know there's a dead zone down here near New Zealand and, like, obviously throughout the world. Do you have an opinion on the dead zones? I can certainly uh, give you a, a scientist's answer to why we've got the dead zones and why they continue to uh, to grow. And you are right; they're they're affecting all the all the oceans, all the seas that have a border where rivers run into the sea. There's two uh, in your area that are internationally accepted as dead zones and they're both between your mainland and Tasmania. Mm -hmm. You have other smaller dead zones right round the, the northern coast of Australia and these are growing. So what is a dead zone? Well it, it's exactly that. There is, it is a body of water in which there are no living organisms plant or animal, for most of the time. It starts with human interference and dumping nitrogen-rich pollutants in rivers and spraying their crops with nitrogen-rich fertilisers. Now, nitrates, that's the form that they're in, in, in fertiliser, are extremely uh, soluble. You put them on the uh, the, uh, the ground and it rains and that that hasn't been taken up with the, the plants is what's carried down in the rainwater to the rivers. The plants need uh, nitrogen and it's very difficult to get hold of actually because nitrogen makes up most of the atmosphere, 80% of the atmosphere is, is nitrogen, but it's not accessible because it's a very inert gas. And, uh, but plants can fix it, they can use it. So you've got this, uh, this lovely soluble nutrient in the river. Now you might think that, well, What's the problem with that? Well, what the problem is, you get a massive growth of algae, and uh, they're called algal blooms, and they completely cover the top of the the water body, whether it's a river or a, a lake, and because they they want to be near the light, of course they put, uh, they blot out the light to the bottom of the that water body. And they are doing very well at the top. They are growing and growing. All the plants underneath, they will die because they've no, they've no light. And when they die, they are decomposed by microorganisms, which give out, take the oxygen out of the water and put back carbon dioxide. If those plants die, every food chain begins with a plant. When they die, rapidly all the animal in that body of water will die and they will decompose, again, depleting oxygen from the water. In, in time, the, the, uh, the, algal, uh, the algae will also die and go to the bottom. But of course, there'll be another increase of uh, an influx of, of nitrogen again, and that a cycle sets up. 
now at the bottom of your your river, say, because this is what this is what's going to end up in the sea and cause a dead zone. The 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 river is moving the mass of organic matter, dead organic matter, along the riverbed until it reaches the next estuary, where again you get the the cycle repeating itself. More algal blooms, a massive increase in plankton, the plant plankton, because decaying matter on the bottom is releasing nutrients. So then you get another bloom and it just goes on like that. And as that water moves out and out and out from the estuary, more and more of the seabed becomes a dead zone. There's only one way that we can stop this cycle, and that is not to put fertilizers on the land and not to uh, put effluent into the rivers. And not to put nitrogen on the land would mean that the amount of crop that you could grow would decrease. And guess what action that people could take to make it that we don't need more crop from that land. It all comes back to the same thing, doesn't it? It comes back to the same thing. If they adopted a vegan diet, then we don't need to use at least five-sixths of the area that is now under crop. We don't need that because we can, in one-sixth of the area, we can uh, meet the, the needs of everybody on the planet. Do you think the, um, the horrendous lack of ocean life that's left in the oceans these days has something to do with the dead zones? Obviously, the, uh, there's a movement of water. Where there is restricted movement of water, then the um, dead zones, they spread. Like if you think about the channel between Australia and Tasmania, it is a restrictive channel. I know it's big, but it's not big in, in global terms. And that's why that's where your biggest dead zones are going. But of course, the ecosystem uh, as a whole in the ocean is being upset by the, the other animals that are, are being taken, taken out of it. Like I explained about the, the wolves and the deer, what humans go after are the big stuff because, in general, that is the most money-making. That's why fish like tuna are on the brink of extinction if we don't stop fishing them. Uh, those and many other species are taken out, millions of tons every year are taken out, and a large proportion of that ends up either as fertilizer back on the land to uh, start the process again, or human consumption, obviously, but a huge uh, lot of that goes into feeding captive animals. Exactly. That's something that most people don't understand. It's important for people to understand that a lot of the animals that come out of the ocean are therefore then fed to pigs, fed to humans just needs to stop dogs and cats and every yep. every domestic animal that is a carnival 
or an omnivore. Uh, isn't that the reason that uh, Paul Watson of Sea Shepherd yes. uh, is a vegan, to protect the seas? Not, yes, not absolutely. He, he readily admits that, yes. Yes, mm. yes. At this moment in time, where we are, given that every one of our aims are huge, if you, you want... You want everybody to be become vegan you want everybody not to have domestic pets you want there to be no you know domestic animal food sources we these are huge things we're asking for and i think if you know for any reason somebody becomes a vegan then they should be nurtured until they want it for the if it's not for the right reason when they become it we need to educate them that it's the right reason for the planet in, uh, as a whole okay fo following on from that uh, an issue that is relevant in the moment at the moment is the the relative ease of being a vegan and uh, there are some claims that veganism is is uh, really easy for everyone at the moment and other people are, are kind of suggesting well the, the position is a little bit more to use the phrase nuanced than that. Now you've you've been a vegan for many years, and so consequently, the the ease of being vegan for you, particularly, probably a lot easier than when you went vegan. But you know, what's your general take on? Yes, when I when I was went vegan, it was quite difficult, really. Not least because I was genuinely frightened that my growing children might be adversely affected and I actually wouldn't let them go vegan when I first went. I had to do some real research to make sure that I wasn't going to damage them. And so so I, I had to accept the fact that I cooked non-vegan food for them and, and I ate a vegan and I shifted their balance to more more of the stuff that I ate as time went on until both of them actually ended up vegan. So I was, I was pretty lucky, I suppose, because I was already able to cook from uh, raw in ingredients and, and soon learned to improvise, make, make sure the protein is in the form of nuts and lentils and beans and all the things that you all know about and I used to cook those from scratch and and that was okay some some sort of alternative to milk was a bit more difficult they did have soya milk when I became a vegan but it was dire it was awful it was almost undrinkable well well I couldn't drink it as soy soya milk well, but that, at that least was, I could yeah yeah, it yeah. Was like a nut milk, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. it, it was terrible. Um, anyway, it, I it, quite liked it. <laughs> it, it. It was all right cooked, you know, so I could make the kids porridge and and uh, and other things, the sauces and things like that, and that's what I used it for. So in, in that sense, it was, I didn't find it difficult, but I'm the sort of person that doesn't find things difficult once I've made up my mind that I'm doing the right thing, and I knew that being a vegan was, you know, in my heart and my soul, I knew that's what I had to do. And so I, I found ways to, uh, to do that. Nowadays, I mean, it's, it's easier in 
one respect, you can go and buy ready meals if you want and, and, and what have you. Not that I'm uh, saying that's what people should do. There's a vast amount of uh, vegan uh, stuff around, but I don't like, I, I personally don't like convenience foods. It is difficult to go out. My, my daughter the other day say, said to me, I found a, a cafe that does uh, vegan uh, food. We can go out now, you know, because we can out, go out now and you won't be just eating a plate of chips as the only vegan alternative. So going out, but I've never been a going out to eat person really. So if, if somebody w wants to do that and wants to socialise a lot, I, thought, I think it might be a problem but basically I think if you make your mind up that this is the right thing to do you'll wait find a way <laughs> and the cat agrees <laughs> I kind of went missing for a while there I think what, what it was was my battery got a bit low and it kind of closed everything down well your pacemaker the one in my head <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really confident that Lynn's had an opportunity to slag on Roger enough yet, so maybe that's... Oh, absolutely not. We, we can do another hour think, of that. Well, that you know, what, what I'll say about that, Tim, is, is she can do as much as she wants, but it won't get in the podcast. <laughs> Barbara has a copy too, remember? Oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> hey, Barbara, how much do you want for your copy? <laughs> <laughs> I've got them all on on my list. <laughs> I did have one question. When you look at the state of the movement today, thinking back, right? If you can go back in time and try to imagine how what did how did you think that the, that the world was going to look today? How does it come close to what you know? Are we further along than you thought we'd be? Have we made less progress? Are you satisfied? Are you dissatisfied? I'm totally dissatisfied. <laughs> you know, oh, you know. Finish on the positive. <laughs> I will. Yeah. I, you know, because I, I don't have any an ounce of patience in this issue, and and I, I, I want it so desperately. It is very, very slow moving, and to find, I, I, I was disappointed to find that you've got this wonderful communication tool now we never had any of that at all when we we first started um you know you've got this tool for for discussion and getting out there the messages and one thing and another and half the time it's somebody slagging somebody else off it really is that hasn't changed, you know, as, you know, in the anti-angling uh, group, being told by another group that I have to not, not to rock any boats and things like that. And you don't understand and we've got to get this and, and, and ours is more important than yours and, and, and what have you. And, and people are, are nitpicking over, over, over words. They're spending a lot of time accusing people that their motives aren't right and what have you. Do you remember being accused in, this, in the ages of being morally confused on, on several levels? Oh, I do all the time. <laughs> all the time. But, but how can people... You know, one of the things I always say is I, haven't got a, I don't look upon people as a, a guru. I take a, 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 anybody... 
in any in any sphere and i've done it in in education in feminism and, and and everything i listen to what people say and i take what i can get from that i do a lot of thing my own thinking and where i am today i am here because of my actions not because somebody told me to not not because somebody said it was the right thing to do I saw the signs and I read them. I, I know not everybody can do that. I mean, my childhood was hard and it made me fiercely independent. And so that's why I'm, I do what I do today. That's not the same for everybody. And some people need to be coached and, and what have you. But if they come into a movement and they go onto um, Facebook and they say, see, there's a raging argument going on because somebody won't accept that you're not as good as me because I've got this philosophy and you're not following it to the letter. Therefore, you're not as good as me. You can't have my labels. It's just so childish. And, 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 and that really does uh, disappoint me that after all this time, we're still bickering inside the movement we bickered over over director action and one thing and another and all the way through it's one group saying that they were, their cause is best and another we're all in it for the trying to get to the same end an end to abuse and use of animals and if if people can't get that into their heads and say that's what I'm working for. I'm not going to spend my energies arguing with people. I'm going to spend my energies educating as many people as I can to convince them that, that a vegan lifestyle is best. Full stop, really. I agree with that, Lynn, and I think it becomes very problematic and I think it becomes quite embarrassing when you have people say for example that are feeding the cats that they share their house with other animals but are labeling other people who happen to make a mistake and eat some sugar as non-vegans and spending hour upon hour upon hour slagging on those people for eating sugar whilst they're feeding cats other animals it's just it's silly it's a waste of time and it's it is. offensive it is. We all make mistakes. We're all human. And, and we've got to rise above the humans that do the abuse and do our best for other animals. Absolutely. And humans are yeah. animals and really shouldn't be abused either. So I think there are some problems that should perhaps be looked at a little more closely than what they have been looked at. Yeah. So I'm sorry it wasn't so positive to end <laughs> <laughs> I'm <made> all <laughs> less positive. <laughs> it will be very positive if people take notice of what you've just said, Lynn, because I think that's that's so important that um you know we need to be we need to be united. We've all got different opinions on, on certain things. But in general we all want a, a world where animals are, are no longer used and abused by humans, as as you quite rightly said. We need to concentrate more on what we've got in common as um, defenders of animals, as people that want to, to protect and liberate animals, than on, on the small differences that we have. 
one one from another. Yeah, I agree with that. The um, the future's vegan. <laughs> Wait, I've decided. Well, yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, you you know what? I I think there's going to be one almighty uh, breakdown of societies all over the uh, uh, all over the globe both because of the natural disasters that are going to happen, but also because people, I mean, I always said the Brits don't have the uh, guts to to uh, stand up to their governments and to the uh, system. But I am really proud of those that are in, in uh, London at the moment in tents because I can, people are, are waking up to the fact that there's injustices all over and the injustices to other animals is largely driven by the fact that it raises revenue for rich people and you know the masses don't get it do they but if they can if i don't care what route they're going in if they can get it that there's people up there that are exploiting them maybe we can then say and, a, and, and they're also exploiting other animals. Lynn, I'd like to thank you very sincerely for spending your time with us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and I've learned quite a bit off you, so I'm very grateful for that on a personal level. Thank you very much on behalf of AR Zone. You're welcome. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks, Lynn. Thank you.